Hello, Grit Men, Grit Woman, Grit Man here, and I would like to welcome you to the Grit Men Show, where we believe it's alright to be a man, and that the world could use more grit. This show is a production of the Grit Men Club, and is being recorded without a mask. Please note, grit does not discriminate based on race, gender, age, politics, where you live, or how much money you make. Let's get going. I'm excited for this episode, excited for you to hear the wisdom that Coach Graham's going to share with you. I'm also excited for this time of year. we got baseball playoffs college football, hunting season, bourbon season. I'm recording this intro on my back patio. Got me a fire going. I can smell that pinion wood. Makes me want to throw some meat on the pit. His cousin Dan says that's some high cotton right there. Let me set the table, go over some ground rules, some terminology, uh, and then we'll get to our guest. So first off, we need to define what grit is. By definition, grit is resiliency, fortitude, guts, spirit, metal, hustle, toughness, not quitting or giving up, and finding a way to win. That'll be the definition we use for grit. The man part, God created man, and we believe that grit men or men of grit don't need to be demonized. We need more of them. Instead of demonizing, let's grow that group. So if you put the two together, that's grit, man, grit, men. So individually, you'll identify as a man. Collectively, when you get more than one man of grit together, that'll be the grit men. All right, now we got some definitions. Let me tell you a little backstory. So how do we get here? Why are we doing this podcast? What's the purpose? Well, go back with me about 20 years. I was playing baseball at Rice University. I wanted to be known as a tough player, a gritty player, so I created a nickname for myself called the Grit Man. I told my teammates that's what I want to be referred to by. They laughed at me. They said, you are not the Grit Man. I said, okay, that's fair. I haven't earned it. So for a year, I worked on my grit game, came back to them a year later prior to going to Omaha to compete for the national championship. We'd had a few beers. I might have caught them at a weak moment, but I hit them with it. I said, hey, if we go to Omaha and win a national championship, you'll have to call me Grit Man forever. They said, look, we win a national championship, I'll call you whatever you want. So we had offer, acceptance, terms. We go to Omaha, we beat Texas, we beat Stanford in the finals. Lo and behold, I became the Grit Man. That's a great story, but it doesn't stop there. So for the past 20 years, I've lived my life or attempted to live my life as a grit man. We've created businesses, we've raised children, been sued a few times, we've had a son that was born at 23 weeks and four days, taught me a lot about life, gave me some perspective. I've come to the realization that we need more grit in the world. I believe we're at an all-time low point for grit. There's a grit crisis, and if we don't do something about it, I believe that grit could be weeded out of the gene pool. So that there's the basis for the show. We are going to interview guests that have a unique grit story to share. And we're going to try to figure out where grit comes from. Can you teach it? Can you spread it? Those principles. And we're going to learn. Sometimes I will be the host. Sometimes I may have a co-host. Sometimes I may give the ball to another grit man and let them guest host. If you hadn't picked up on it already, 
I have no formal media training, so if it sounds raw or amateur, it's because it is. But we'll get better because grit men are always working on their game. That's a grit man principle. But if you have any feedback on the show about future guests you may recommend, shoot me a note at chris at gritmenclub.com. A couple more things and we'll get to our guests. A couple places where we'll gather influence from is the Masters Tournament as well as the movie or book Lonesome Dove. I've been fortunate enough to go to the Masters a few times. It's probably my all-time favorite sporting event. Although I just got to go to the Ryder Cup and that was pretty good as well. But the Masters, the first time I went, I sat behind 12 green and I read the spectator guide cover to cover and just fell in love with the etiquette and decorum and tradition that exists there. But if you look in the spectator guide, there's a section that says the chief objective of the Masters is to stage a show that's enjoyable to all, a first-class event, and if we can, to contribute something to the advancement of the game. I like how that's worded. So we're going to try to stage a first-class show that's entertaining, thought-provoking, and contribute to the advancement of grit, if we can. Lonesome Dove, my favorite book. It's, if you haven't seen it, I recommend you watch the movie or read the book. But grit men are a combination of Gus and Woodrow. Woodrow, you have the toughness and the hard work. Hatred, behavior, and the man, he won't tolerate it. And then you got Gus that's fun-loving. He likes to have a good time. And he appreciates all the little everyday things in life. So if you take those two characters and combine them, that's a grit man. Well, I believe that's all for now. We'll get into more what a grit man is, what a grit man isn't. We're all different, but there's some absolutes that we agree to. Grit men don't have to agree on everything, just enough. But I'll tell you who a grit man is, and that's Coach Wayne Graham. And I had the privilege of playing for him for three years. I've never been around someone who was able to bring out the best in people like he was. He was tough, he'd piss you off sometimes, but he'd break you down and build you back up as a better version of yourself. There are lots of grit men principles that you're going to hear in this interview, like betting on yourself, an emphasis on education and constant learning, and making the most of your situation with the resources you have around you. We'll talk about not complaining and finding a way to win. If you're not a huge baseball fan or care about Rice University, hang in there with me. I think there's something in this interview for everybody. I traveled up to Austin to interview Coach Graham. He's 85 years old now, and he's as sharp as ever. I hope you enjoy this interview and get out there and find your grit. Guys, he's a lot like Nails. He plays like Nails. He's tough as Nails. He likes to call himself Grit Man, whatever that means. Quit with my daddy. I said, didn't make the time. And it's been a year since I've seen a deer at a small mouth on the line. The other day I hooked a monster. And as I reeled him in, I thought, man, it feels good to be country again. All right, Coach, I'm going to take a page out of your book. When you walked in our locker room for a meeting, you weren't ready to chit-chat. You were ready to get down to business. So- yeah, well, you have to get the, the team's mind. Getting that right is, is a really great thing. Once everybody's on the same page, you got a better chance. You never get that. Casey Stingle said you 
keep the eight guy, keep half the team that hates you away from the one that like you. But that wasn't that isn't the case in college. You need everybody to get on the same page as much as possible. So I didn't intend for anyone to take that lightly. Well, we notice when you walked in the room, uh, it was time to pay attention. So let's get started. First off, where did your grit come from, and how did it develop through your life? I just think I always had a determination to be a part of athletics. Uh, and that creates a grit, the purpose, the idea that you're not going to give in, like Churchill said, never, never, never give in. Uh, well, I had, I couldn't feature life without athletics, so I, I found my uh, place in it. And uh, at age 12 in Houston, Texas, Little League came in the next day, year, but I wasn't eligible. There was only one kind of organized baseball, and this is going to amaze you in Houston, Texas, and, and it was uh, leagues that were kept going at the parks and recreation like uh, Studiewood Park or Memorial Park. And he, usually a junior high coach was there, and he had the balls, and he did the umpiring, and he had the catching gear. And if you could organize a team and show up, you got to play an organized game of baseball. I was 12 years old. We had no management. I'm 12 years old. I looked around, and there was enough players to get a team in my neighborhood, all the way from 12. It's a 14 and under league. Now, I don't know how I chorused them or whatever, but we took a bus. They put us in a league we shouldn't have been in in Memorial Park. We took a city bus, a nickel apiece, to more, uh, St. Thomas High School, and then hitchhiked the rest of the way, and we played. It was my team, but we sort of got the lineup by getting people to agree with me what it should be. I'm 12 years old. So your first head coaching job was at 12 years old. Well, I wasn't really the head coach. That wasn't my designation, but I got everybody to cooperate, and I didn't realize that I, that ultimately would be a huge part of my skill was to get people purposeful towards winning the game. We actually won the league. But we didn't go for in the playoffs. The so next year, two parents took over the team, and we went to the city finals. But that first year, think about that. It never occurred to me that I would ever be a coach. But what was I doing the first year? That, that's what you call logistics, figuring out a way to get all those guys on a city bus and get them to even play. It was hard, but we, we played a full schedule. We well, whatever a full schedule was, at Memorial Park. Next year we played at Studiewood Park, which you know, yeah. and it was a lot easier to play. But that was my first. Before 12 years old, tell me about your upbringing, and did you have a dad that, that liked sports? Oh, crazy about him. Uh, he, he had uh, semi-pro baseball teams back in the 40s. When, during the war, he had semi-pro baseball teams. And, and after, one of them was called Finger Furniture, uh, which – actually helped Finger Furniture become popular in Houston because that team won tournaments around Houston, and there was no, not much pro ball there. In the 40s, there wasn't any. And he had a similar pro team there, and I was a bad boy. So I was exposed to people that played for the love of the game. They weren't getting any money. They played because they loved to play baseball. And so I always was very – committed to the integrity of the game because of that i think 
They played for the love of it. Right. So, and they had a good team. And um, so that was kind of my start. Okay. Let's let's move forward. So you went to Reagan High School in Houston. Why don't you speak about your, your high school experience? Well, I was fortunate. Uh, actually, I improved my parents' living conditions because I was at, in the Davis School District. I had gone to Marshall Junior High, and I was going to Davis for eight weeks. But I, on the, in the summer, I'd played on a summer league team. Hank Doty was the manager, legendary in Houston for a time. And it was called General Electric, and we played, and uh, we – at the end of the season, we played an all-star team from Dallas. And we were just a league team. And we played an all-star team from Dallas, which we found out Dallas had a lot of 1,500 players that could really play. Well, Hank decided – we got killed. Hank decided the next day that that wasn't going to happen again. So he got Reagan's American Legion team, four of them to come over, ringers, and play on our team. And they didn't have anybody to catch Jack Schulte. And Jack Schulte was going to pitch, who had just pitched Reagan to the state playoffs, uh, state finals of American League. going to pitch in a 1500 game against these monsters from Dallas. Well, they asked, Can he, is it, Larry Evans did not want to catch. He was our catcher. He said, I can't catch Jack Schulte. I said, I can. And I'd... Really, never caught much, but I knew that if you keep your eye on the ball and you don't let the bat bother you, I could catch a baseball. And Jack never threw one in the dirt. And we won, and I hit a home run, a single. And Jack went back to Reagan and told the coach, we need to get that guy out of Davis. He did. And the other three guys on the team validated that. So... Piggy Nesbitt, who played at Rice, a quarterback at Rice, his dad was a chiropractor who was building a new home in the Heights. So he was moving out of his home, and it was going to be up for rent. So they called us and said, we got a place where you can rent over here. I still remember we paid $75 a month. And I think the utilities were paid. So I improved my uh, parents' condition by being a recruited high school athlete, they got us a house, and we moved over there, and I started playing for Reagan. And it sounds like that move created some lifelong friendships. And you mentioned Jack and Schulte. opportunity because Reagan won the state championship the first year I was there. I didn't have much part in it. I was a sophomore, and they were a senior-laden team. But you got exposed we won to the winning state championship, and we had good teams every year. Real good team. Okay. So after Reagan, you went to the University of Texas in Austin. Yeah, I was one of the first players, they say, that ever got a full scholarship to uh, to uh, Texas. I was going to Baylor with a, a guy named Jimmy Bethay, who was the brother of uh, the Bethay that used to coach here, Bill Bethay. So I, I got married that summer. And Baylor didn't really want a married student there. So Texas called me, and they said uh, they knew they were going to have to up the ante. And me and a guy named Jim Bronstead and Harry Taylor, two pitchers, theoretically got the first three baseball full scholarships to Texas Um, because they used to make them go and earn it 
Well, we got him. So I went to Texas on full baseball scholarship. And so Coach Falk was your coach. Ben Falk, who well, influenced me a lot. Okay. Tell me about him. He's hard-nosed. He he basically was a guy that uh, was committed to truth <laughs> and honesty. He uh, And he was tough. He, he I tell you how much grit he had. He shattered his ankle the year, I think, or two previous years maybe before I got there. So he limped all the time I was there, and he hit all the fungos. <laughs> and they were bullets. I'll never forget that. Uh, so... I saw how tough he was and didn't let things bother him, and he told the truth, so he influenced me. That's good. So after a couple years at Texas, you you go on to the professional ranks, uh, spend 10 years in the minors, which six of those 10 you hit over 300. You had a couple short stints in the big leagues with the Phillies and Mets. Why don't you speak about that time in your life? Well, uh, they sent me to D-ball because uh, (laughs) – My tools weren't all that impressive. I ran okay, I threw okay, and I hit okay. But I didn't hit with a lot of power. So it sent me to D-ball. And, uh, what is, but I was what is D-ball? I don't even know what D-ball class is. Class D. Baseball used to start at Class D. And even a rookie league below that. D, C, B. And I was the only player, I think they would have released me, but I was the only player in the organization hit over 300 that year. 303, I think. Well, anyway, um, that helped me continue. But um, I never was highly thought of. In fact, I remember the newspapers in the league were asked to predict how many players would get to the big leagues or how many players would get above A ball. And they didn't think anybody would get above A ball. Turned out a lot of people did. But uh, they didn't think we had that many good players in the league. But Several of them got to the big leagues. So, anyway. So, you played for Casey Stingle with the Mets. What was he like as a manager? Well, the influence he would have on me is Casey was a showman, but he also, he was funny and all that, but he knew the game. When I sat on the bench for the Mets, I sat close because he ran a – running commentary on the game during the game. He'd say he shouldn't have thrown that pitch or he should have done this and that. And I'd listen to him, and he was deadly accurate, deadly accurate. So I learned from Casey just by sitting close to him on the bench. Isn't that a crazy thing? Because he didn't think that much of my ability. I know he didn't because he said so. (laughs) I wasn't supposed to hear it, but he said so. Well, he must have had some influence on you because at Rice, you wore number 37. And in yeah. my research, I found that Casey Stingle also wore number 37. And he won a lot of world championships. And everybody said it's because of the talent he had. Look at the talent that the Boston Red Sox had at that time. You had to be pretty good to beat Boston. They had Ted Williams and all those guys. Well, that's good. So after Pro Bowl, you – you went into coaching, but before that, you had to go back to school because you were some short on some hours. 48. I had to work long, long hours as a contract draftsman in Houston. I found a job that was doing that. 68 hours a week for two years. A lot of overtime to save the money. And I'd remarried to go back to Texas and get 48 hours because it was my dream to get. I'm still glad I did it. So, Although, when I graduated, there were no jobs in Austin. 
So you you found a job opening in Houston. Yeah, well, then Texas X, believe it or not. Okay. Who was coaching football, head coach of football at Scarborough High School, which there's an oddity there that helped me get where I was going, wanted to go. I didn't know I ever would. Max wife told me, you may be the greatest baseball coach in the world, but you ain't going to never make any money. That was a source of contention, obviously. Uh, but Scarborough was a new school in Houston that had a very low enrollment compared to the league they competed in. HSD wanted them not to have to travel. They didn't want to send them to smaller schools like Waller and Brenham and all those. So we competed in a league that was two notches higher than we were supposed to be competing in. And we won six championships. So that kind of – my second year in HISD, I was coach of the year in HISD. So that projected me somewhat forward. But my wife had a good job, and I kept my education going. I got a master's from Houston, and I got uh, I got all-level certification where I could be a – Principal, I've got a certificate that says I can do anything in public education up to superintendent of schools. I'm a little old for superintendent of schools right now. (laughs) But anyway, we, uh, you know, I I kept my education going. And the significance of that is my last year in high school, I moved to Spring Branch because we didn't have a legitimate field at Scarborough and we had that low enrollment. And there's a big significance to the fact that Spring Branch Baseball came open. They had a better enrollment. They had a lighted field on campus. And they obviously had athletes. So I went to Spring Branch, and uh, they had not won in forever uh, a baseball championship because Spring Woods was winning them all. They had Aaron Noble. Rick Lukin was a first-round pick. And a obscure pitcher named Roger Clemens, who by the time he was a senior, the other two guys had left. And he was a senior when I was at Spring Branch. And we beat him for the district title. Todd Edwards, who you may have known, hit a home run with a runner on. We beat him three to one. Okay, that doesn't sound that significant, except it proved to people that I I could win at two schools, Mm -hmm. and I did. And so when San Jack came open, I had every credential. Oddly enough, I had all the educational credentials. Masters plus 24 hours. Uh, I had won at two high school leagues. And my best handball buddy, my doubles partner in handball, played golf with AD at Spring Branch. So I got the job at... um, San Jack. And the significance of Clemens is in June, in June, he was still available. Wow. He had thrown over 100 innings and walked 10 at Spring Woods, but he threw 85 miles an hour. His coach asked me to try to get him in at Texas because he said he's going to play football. He's a good football player, defensive end. He's going to go to some North Texas school, Austin College, I think it was. And I, he, he should be a pitcher. He wants to pitch. And I said, well, he's, he's big. 
He throws strikes, and he'll get so he can throw harder. So he was, I had two scholarships left, and I gave him one of them, Roger so, Clements. So you're, you leave high school coaching, go to be the head coach at San Jack, and one of your first recruits is My Ro- first recruit. Your very first recruit was Roger Clements. Yeah. That was a good one. Pretty decent. It at least saw that I could uh, understand potential. Right. That's the key to the recruiting at Rice was understand. You, got, you had to get the diamonds in the rough. You had to see the potential, or you're not going to win anything. How did you do that? I could see it. Who who had more experience? I had experience since the time I was seven years old. It's called, uh, what's the basis for intuition? Experience, passion. You ever read the book, The Outliers? I have. Is that Gladwell? What did he say? Yeah. What did he say? That's Gladwell. I had all of that. Yeah. Passion, experience. Uh, commitment, and that gives you intuition. That gives you the ability to see things other people can't see. Well, with Clements, I don't. The only offer from a junior college, he had no offers from major college. The only offer from a junior college, I think, was books at Blend. Well, whatever our full scholarship was, which wasn't a, wasn't a full scholarship at San Jack, now they got more than anybody. Uh, scholarship aid, but uh, we, uh, I gave him our version, which was books, tuition, fees, and $70 a month. I know what it was, which would pay for an apartment with three other guys close to San Jack. No meals, nothing. But he jumped on it because he wanted to play baseball. Well, you, you went on to win five out of six national titles from 84 to 1990. Uh, speak about that a little bit and the players you had, how you were able to win that much. What was the key ingredients? Well, you got to know what to demand. I always, uh, they asked me one time for a magazine, we've heard you're a demanding coach. And I said, that's redundant. If you're not demanding, what are you? Who, who sets the standards and who backs up the standards? If you're not demanding, you know, you're not a coach. Lombardi would have said the same thing. A lot of them would say the same thing. Probably Saban would say the same thing. Uh, and people don't get that, but it's the way you demand. They got to know you love them. Despite, I've had people leave at San Jack. Really, I did. And they, I said, why are you leaving? I said, because you're not getting on me. That means you don't think I can do it. That means you don't think I have anything left in the tank. So I'm going. I'm leaving. And uh, that's the way that was because you got to – and you got to have a lot of confidence in yourself to set standards. You know, people say, well, who are you? You think you're so smart that you can do that? Well, yeah, I did think I was that smart because I had all that experience from years and years and the love of it from seven years old. Being a bat boy. So you had success in high school, had success in junior college. You take the job at Rice. Explain why you did that and what you saw that made you think that you could win there as well when Rice historically hadn't had any success. Let me make one other point before we go there because it's about demanding. 
I was doing something long before I knew it had a name. Long before I knew it had a name. I would bring a kid in that wasn't achieving what he wanted to. And I'd tell him how good he could be, how wonderful, and this and that. And then I would literally ream him. Just tell him this, how he was failing by not focusing, not having effort. But before he left the room, the last words, but I know you can do it. You know what it's called? A sandwich. It had a name. I was doing it 10 years before I knew it had a name. So what does that do? That tells that kid that no matter how much you've demanded of him and shoot him, that you believe he can do it. That's one of my ploys, but it, it also shows you care about the kid. Okay, now where were we? Well, we were, you went to Rice, and I just... Well, I was arrogant, uh, you know, I guess, but five national championships will breed a certain amount of arrogance. You believe you can do anything. Uh, the player, person that was running the tournament at Grand Junction for JUCO, one year we lost because I thought we got shafted. And I saw him at the convention the next year, and I said, you know, that umpire really, we really got shafted and this and that, but we're coming back and we're going to win. He looked me right now and he said, we had to do something because <laughs> we were winning every year. That was just starting the whole thing at Grand Junction. We were winning too much. But anyway... That, all that made me believe I could do it anywhere, which after I got to Rice, I did have some doubts because I didn't realize how tough it was. Uh, you know, you've got a small school, academic reputation. It's, it's got worse because people started recruiting against Rice with the idea, oh, look at all the money at the top in baseball. Do you want to have to go somewhere that you have to study so hard that you can't really work on your baseball? But we we played uh, the academic card, which is valid. My saying to anybody that was interested in Rice was, if you get a degree from Rice, you got a union card. You're not going to fail in life. That was my biggest recruiting ploy. So, And it worked. So you... But I could recognize potential, and I could put forward what Rice had to offer. You've seen the old stadium. Yeah, I, I used to go to your new yeah, one. Yeah. The old stadium was uh, less than several high schools in Houston, much less than several high schools. We lost Willie Bloomquist, who's now the coach at Arizona State, big league player for many, many years. I thought we had him because of academics. He's real smart. He came in, took one look at that facility, and he, I don't think I ever got another call back. So what did you do at first? I mean, you, you didn't have good facilities. You didn't have a history of winning at Rice. You personally did. And I know they had some good players. So I'm not trying to badmouth any of my former alumni. But what small victories or, or competitive edges did you create at first to make the team better? Well, I knew what you had to demand of them. I knew you had to find diamonds in the rough. You had to find people with potential that weren't highly recruited by, you know, we didn't get people in the top 500 in the country. Forget about that. And you had to go the JUCO route if you could get them, but it was very hard to get them in. 
that story really goes into the 2003 team. But uh, so I started looking for people. Berkman was one of the first, and a lot of people think Cruz was highly, highly recruited. He wasn't. Cruz was hitting right-handed and striking out a lot in high school. Of course, he had power, strong, he could run. In fact, it turned out he could run better than I thought he could. He could really run. And uh, and his family has sent, sent everybody to Rice, and he's the coach now, which is great because, you know, he knows Rice, and the crew's name is Gold in Houston. But uh, I was looking for guys, and the, the biggest reputation was the crew's name that were recruited, but Berkman wasn't recruited by any, by any four-year institution. A scout came to me. Mike Taylor's brother was a scout, Randy Taylor. I said, I got to find a left-hand hitter. He said, well, I don't have, I got a switch hitter, but he's better left-handed. I said, can he run? He said, eh, he's okay. Can he throw? Eh, he's okay. I said, why should I recruit him? He said, because he can hit. Turned out he could, and I recruited him. So that's one of those so-called – it's hard to believe that Berkman was a diamond in the rough. He was. He could hit. First time I saw him play, he hit two home runs. I said, I did a good job of recruiting that guy because <laughs> I already had him. You know, went to Dallas to watch him play. You you got quite a few players, the Cruz and Berkman and Damon Thames and Matt Anderson, and you, you were starting to get on a roll. Yeah. Well, went, Matt started Anderson to go to Omaha. Luck. Not so much luck. A, a scout moved from Louisville. He was scouting that area moved to Houston. I said, man, I'm desperate for arm. Where can I get an arm? He said, there's a guy in Louisville that he's playing shortstop on his Catholic school team, but he pitches some, and he's got a great arm. He can throw 93 which was big at that time. So we recruited him, and after we recruited him, he's pitching in summer ball, and he was offered $75,000 to sign. But he didn't. He came with us. So that's another diamond in the rough who became the number one pick in the country. And uh, it goes on and on about that. You've got to – you're not going to get the name athlete, rarely, the one that already – is nationwide projected in the top 100. You can't only find one that we did get, although they didn't have those kind of projections when we signed Cruz, but he might not have been in the top 200 because he he wasn't hitting left-handed. He was hitting right-handed, and he was striking out a lot in high school. When he got with us, the older Chael Cruz, the father, said, how about let's try him left-handed? I said, fine. And there's where the story started. Let's speak more about development because I think you were the best I've ever seen at handling your personnel, your coaching staff as well as your players, and knowing which buttons to push. You knew some guys needed some tough love, a little bit of ass-chewing. You need some needed more praise. How did you know which player needed what? <laughs> Ah, that's part of that intuition thing. Uh, you know, they cite Mozart, they cite the Beatles, how they got all the experience and figured all that out. And, and you were part of one of those stories because we got Neiman in who could throw 
hard. He'd had a, some problems in high school. So we were lucky enough to get him. Nobody offered him a scholarship except Baylor, who offered him books. So we offered him a pretty good scholarship. And shortly after he got in there, maybe two months later, three, I came to you. And I said, this guy's a duck out of water. He's six foot whatever. He's way up there. Couldn't find any girlfriend because he was so tall and everything and shy and all this. And I said, you need to go to him and make him a part of our family. And we'll save him. And we did. I'm glad you we did. You remember that? I, I remember. Yeah. Uh, and, and you were a huge part of that one. So, you know, that's the way we did things. You're adaptable. You you keep looking at things. You keep looking at ways to improve your team, ways to win games. That's what I preach to coaches, anyone that's asked me. You've got to be able to adapt even during a game, which we did. You know, you may have a scouting report now, the, all these analytics, but the week you may have got that scouting report that comes from two weeks ago, analysts. All that. That two weeks they've been working on hitting that kid hitting the curveball. All of a sudden he ain't the same hitter. And you got to pick that up at the game at that time. I mean, if he stays right on the first curveball that's thrown to him, something has happened. So you got to be, you got to be into it. Well, you must have always been paying attention. I think you must have kept a Rolodex of information in your brain and just waited for the right time to use it. I'll tell it was there. Yeah. I maintain that all the analytics is great. I highly recommend that people use it. But people that had my experience and my time in the game already had a computer in their brain. The information is already there. If you get it in the computer, I'd already processed it because – it was information. And what had I seen before? The way guys stand at the plate, the way they do all that, the way they react. Because when I was a hitter in pro ball, I always took hitters on my team and saw how they were reacting to the pitches before I got up there. If they're swinging under a fastball, I know i got to get on top of it. If they're pulling off the curveball, I know i got to stay on it longer. You got – People that succeed in baseball, and no, there was no better analytical mind on those particular issues and for his particular talent than Ted Williams. He analyzed all that for himself. Couldn't teach it to others because they didn't have his eyes. Mm-hmm. He had fighter pilot with 2010 vision. You can't teach the same things to a guy that has 2040 vision that a 2010 vision guy can do. So today's game, when you when I watch on TV, it's there's so many stats I don't even understand all of them. And talking about spin rates and launch angle, exit velocity. So some teams gone away with traditional scouting. So it's intuition versus analytics. I'd, I'd love to give your thoughts on that. Both are important. Spin rate. I was one of the first people to read Bill James, and Bill James is a guy that started sabermetrics that went into all this analyst stuff. And I was one of the first guys to read him. And basically what he did was validate everything we already knew. Do you really think that Earl Weaver had to put things into a computer to figure it out? He already figured it out before you could get your computer open. He already had it figured out. 
Uh, and don't get me wrong, it validates some things, like spin rate. Okay, we take spin rate. If a guy is sewing 88, like Jim Deshays used to do, the lefty for the Astros, and throwing the ball by people, 88, he's got spin rate. The ball has enough backspin on it that it's not losing trajectory. That's what spin rate is. It's got enough backspin that it doesn't lose trajectory. Well, you know how you discover if a guy's got spin rate, if you don't have any analytics? Watch. If people are missing the ball under the ball, fastballs that are not that fast, what has he got? Spin rate. So are you saying that the the stats and the analytics is somewhat taken away just common sense or just watching the game and paying attention? Maybe. Some. Yeah. Because you know it's, it's almost lazy because uh, – if you stood in front of Ted Williams in a game and blocked his view of the pitcher, you're probably going to get hit in the back of the head with something. He'd probably just slap you because he could, and you better not slap him back. Oh, you're talking like when he's in the dugout or on yeah. – Yeah, he's paying attention. You don't, he's studying that pitcher. That's the way he made his living. Analytics are good. They're great. But to me, what analytics did for me was to validate what I already knew. And that, actually, I, I've always been semi-insecure, so that helped me because it validated what I thought. But it always did. It always validated what I, what I thought. So if you were still coaching today, it sounds like you'd use a blend of the two. Yeah. I know I would. I was using. Right. We started using uh, things like how many balls does this guy hit there, how many balls – I never liked the shift because you get you can beat the shift and you can beat it at critical times. I told my teams very late while I was still there, I said, you know, if they shift on you, I want you to hit the opposite way. Every time. Every time. Because the very thing they were trying to do get into your head, now you're in their head. Because you beat their system. All right, let's transition so uh at the time when I was playing for you, you'd come in the locker room and we knew you had something on your mind. You always had some message. You were very intentional. But sometimes you would just ask us if we knew what a word meant. And sometimes you could try to use how you used it in a sentence or context clues and guess. But one word you used a lot one day you threw out was milk toast. Yeah, because it's a kind of an attention grabber. Instead of saying soft, I could say you guys are a bunch of milk toast. <laughs> or, or instead of using some politically incorrect words, you could use milk toast and an attention grabber. So was behoove. In other words, it is in your best interest, is what behoove means. It is in your best interest to do what I'm about to say. And they're, they're attention grabbers. That's what they are. I, I still use milk toast a lot. So, I mean, those are. Well, they'll. They'll look at what that means because right. they want to figure out what in the world did he say. But when you first said it, I, I thought it was milk like from a cow and toast. And But no, look it up. It's M-I-L-Q-U-E-T-O-A-S-T. It's a word. Yeah. You probably thought it wasn't a word. I didn't at the time, but now I use it a lot because mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a nice way of telling someone that they're kind of a wuss and, and being soft. So stop being so That's milk right. toast. Uh, 
you also would heightened state of awareness was something that you would tell us over. Why don't you explain what you meant by that? Well, I think uh, Rendon already had a certain amount of that, but I think I may have helped him there because I didn't become a good fielder in pro baseball until I did that. I, I realized that really I didn't, wasn't putting enough into defensive play. And at the time when the pitch arrives at home plate, you have to be – to get a good jump, you have to have your body in position to get a good jump. You have to be in a state of heightened awareness, and that helps you get your body in the right position to get a good jump. So that's the whole origin of that whole thing. When I put myself in a state of heightened awareness when the ball got the home plate, I started getting great jumps. Hard to do in center field because you're looking right through the pitcher and at third base and first base, you have to look at the hitter. You can't look through the pitcher at all. Uh, you've got to watch the bat. Not only to, to read the bat, but because if the hitter's hands slide up on the bat, they're going to bunt. And if their hands slide up on the bunt, up on the bat, you're running. And Rendon got so he could do that. And last time I checked, he was supposed to be the best fielder of bunts in the major leagues. He's pretty good. He's done all right. And that's what I told him. And he, I think he already pretty much had that because he used to take ground balls with his T-shirt in his mouth. You know why? Keep his head down. He'd take all the ground balls with his T-shirt in his mouth. He taught himself well. Another one you used to say was, however the weather is, that's just how we like it. Where where'd that come from? That came from Casey Stingle because the Yankees were playing one day in Yankee Stadium. I think Tempter was close to 100. One of his best pitchers, Allie Reynolds, or Vic Rashi, one of the two, were on the mound, and uh, everybody kept complaining about the heat, and they weren't doing good. So he finally goes out to the mound and tells his pitcher, he said, uh, what's the matter out here? What's going on? He said, the pitchers, oh, he had already said in the dugout, he said, the next guy that said anything about the heat, I'm going to fine him $5,000. And in 1949, $5,000 was a lot of money. So he goes to the mound, he asks the pitcher, he said, what what's the heck's wrong here? And he said, it's hotter than hell, and that's just the way I like it. <laughs> he saved $5,000 right quick. <laughs> so I figured I'd use that to indicate that whatever the conditions are, it's going to be just the way I like it. Let it bother the other team. If it's hot, if it's wet, if it's humid, let it bother the other team, not you. And you would use the heat to our advantage in the regional. You yeah. always wanted to play that first game, right? Yeah. You thought we were tougher and, and more. I knew we were. And it was hot. Oh, yeah. yeah. Houston in June. Uh, you used to read a lot of books. You still reading? Probably too much. I probably – in fact, the Internet, they keep – count of that on the internet now when you read books they've said things to me recently that indicated i was reading about more books than just about anybody <laughs> like you would be interested in this or you would be interested right. in that we have an account where you've read this many books uh, you're doing good uh, all that kind of what stuff. do you what do you like to read oh i i it's my f flaw in reading i haven't read enough i've read a lot of educational stuff in the past a lot 
formal education, you know, I got 241 credit hours. That's the truth. I do 241 credit hours. But so I read for pleasure. I like, uh, I like mysteries. I like spy books. Uh, I like science fiction. One of my favorite books of all time. They're, they're trying to make it a movie again. It's coming out Dune. It's probably my favorite book of all time because it examines many of the issues we've got today, ecology, politics, inherited wealth, intuition, all that. It's called Dune? Dune. It's one of the, I've been in several libraries where I asked the librarian, what's the greatest science fiction book of all time? They, every one of us said Dune. Who's the author? Her, Frank Herbert who wrote many other books. And he was an ecologist. But Dune, yeah, it's a great book. And I just, I read for diversion. I, I read what I like to read when it comes to fiction. I'm a speed reader, by the way. I can read a book half a day. Um, I like characterization, how he feels people will react to certain situations in the story. A story, you, you send yourself into another world, really, but you're, I like how he perceives people react in a good story. It's like them. I like, I've always loved the movies. Still watch movies on TV. Well, good. Well, Coach, let's transition to our 2003 NASA Championship team. So you had a lot of momentum built up and... 2003 was our year, and so accomplished something never been done at Rice, and you took a bunch of players that had talent but weren't necessarily highly recruited. You got transfers from junior college as well as Division One, and you molded us together, and we were the best team in the country. Why don't you speak about that? Well, we had no weaknesses, none, but we had no depth, and we didn't get hurt. We had one injury, Jorgensen, who we'd gotten from football because he could fly. Track. I mean, oh, yeah, track because he could fly. And he got hurt. He was the only injury, but we happened to have one extra outfielder, Bubella, who was our DH. And Bubella was a good outfielder, too. So we didn't – the thing at the, at, uh, at Omaha that we we didn't have a pure center fielder, Austin would tell you, Davis, that he, he, he did well. But he wasn't a pure center fielder in the tournament. That's the only loss we had. But every position was good. We got Rutge, who was a great catcher. He looked like a gladiator back there. He was great. He was a force. And we got Sinise because Texas wouldn't. Texas would never let another player transfer to us because of Sinise. And we had a Houston connection. We'd originally recruited him, couldn't get him. But he had a, a shoulder injury that required the removal of a rib. And Texas didn't really care if they kept him. So we got him, which they forever regretted, Augie did. Uh, at second base, uh, who the heck did we have? Cruz. You moved Cruz. him from short. Oh, I moved second. Cruz from short. And he was he, and convinced him that he had to go opposite some. He had to quit trying to pull everything and hit home runs. He had hit like 230 the year before or less with some home runs. 
I said, you can hit 15 more home runs and hit 220 again, or you can hit 350 and 10 home runs. And that's exactly what he did. Led the team in hitting. I think he led in home runs. I think he hit 11. And uh, you had come in from JUCO, and uh, you'd been a second baseman. And uh, great leadoff, man. We knew that. We knew you could hit. We knew you could take the walker. We knew you could get hit. And uh, you used everything you had. The beauty of the whole thing is we we had an infield with Cruz at second, and we could move you to left field, and I thought you were the best by far. Left fielder in college baseball, and a miracle happened because I don't think it was me, but somebody touched You didn't throw that well from second base, but you threw from left field like Clemente. You threw everybody out. I'll give credit to Coach, David, Coach Pierce on that. I think he worked David with it. Pierce helped you a lot. And it, it was a lot easier in outfield. You just let it go, and if you miss the first guy, there's another Stay one over there the to get. Stay over the top. Get, get spin. spin rate. You had spin rate from left field. That's what you had. Well, and uh, I just we, wanted to play. When you asked yeah. me if I could play left field, never played ever. I said, "Yes, sir, I can play left field." And you did. And. Uh, of course, Bubella was a good recruit out of uh, Blinn. Mm-hmm. And we had Austin Davis, who we, who was playing right field originally and played center field in the World Series. But uh, he, was, he was a good player. I think he's got the hit record still at just, Rice. Just a pure hitter. He, he could get he out could of hit. bed and get three hits. I, you know, there were things about his swing that a lot of people would probably try to change. But how do you do that when he's getting hits every game? And he covers the whole plate. There's no apparent real weaknesses. And then we got uh, Stansbury, which is a very fortunate recruit. Uh, I don't know even who we should credit that with. But he was a Juke All-American at shortstop. So naturally, having been a Juke All-American at shortstop, we knew that he could play third base. And he really could play third base. And, uh, of course, we had Giannis Short who came to us. We thought Giannis was going to be a pitcher for us. In fact, my whoever was recruiting told me that. He probably he can play shortstop, but he's probably going to pitcher, be a pitcher. Well, he came out and played in a summer league game after we recruited him. And I watched him play shortstop. I turned to the guy that recruited him. I said, he's going to be our shortstop. Because you know why? The ball always landed in the center of his glove. And he could throw. And he was fast enough. He wasn't a burner, but he he could move. And he got good jumps. So that's pretty much the way that team went together, except for pitching. And we developed. Umber was the only one pitcher that came out of high school as a decent, I think he was a 20th round draft choice or 21st. Neiman and Townsend weren't recruited by college. And uh, after we recruited uh, Umber, some colleges tried to recruit him. And of course, Baker went to Alabama and then came back to us because he's a Houston guy. And we wanted him and he came back and we lucked into Arzma. Because Ardman had been in Penn State out of 
Colorado, and he was an academic guy. And his dad, a vice president of waste management, was relocated to Houston. And thence came Arzma. But at midseason, Arzma wasn't a pitcher. College World Series, he was a force and got his money, too. So it was a team that you got to know you don't want to waste talent. So we moved the talent around to find the positions they could play, and we developed the pitchers that had the talent to do it. So speak to those three pitchers. You kind of touched on it, but pitching and defense is what we won by. We had the lowest oh, yeah. ERA in the country. We had the best fielding percentage in the country. Either we had the best or second. I don't know which. And I think we had the highest graduation rate in the country, too. It's another point. Yeah, but, we. what they say now is we checked all the boxes as far as uh, character and everything else. And some of that has to be developed. You know, the saying is psychologists argue about character. Most people have the potential to develop character. They need some guidance along the way, and I tried to provide that. And uh, that team had a lot of character. And uh, Steve Smith later, a couple of three years before I retired, came in and he was watching players at our, uh, we were having some sort of, showcase there and he you know he was a Baylor coach for all those years he said I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time and this sounds like I'm tooting my own horn but it's a true story he came in and he said why did you recruit those guys I said what guys he said Townsend Umber and Neiman I said because we needed arms and I saw potential that's it. We needed arms. We couldn't just go out and recruit the top even 500. We had to find arms that could be developed, and we had to develop character in people that inherit, inherently had some character. Like I say, the psychologists will all argue with that everybody has character. You just got to develop it somehow. Would you say that that team was one of the toughest teams you coached? Oh, they definitely tough because we could, we didn't believe anybody could beat us. And, you know, we weren't going. The year before, it helped develop that because we felt like we could have won it the year before. Texas beat us, I think, 2-1 to one the first game. And they wouldn't have won it if we beat them. So – we came back with a lot of grit. Uh, and it was there, you know, people divide, And it was encouraged. You've got to, in, sort of like with that sandwich, you've got to encourage what you want. I had a coach that I finally had to say to him, you know, you don't use enough positives. Negatives are fine. We have to demand things. But you don't use enough positive. You, when you see what you want, you got to say, that's it. He became a better coach after that. Well, speaking of the coaches, I mean, 
you put together a great team, but you also put together a great coaching staff with Mike Taylor, with David Pierce, with Zane Curry. That was a big part of our success, too. Oh, I think so. Yeah, of course, right from San Jack all the way through Rice, I felt like I had to keep a firm hand on the pitching. But David immediately flowed into the system. You know, he I think he came at the beginning of the year. Well, Coach Rupp left to take the job at Sam, and yeah. so he actually transferred in right there in the spring of 03. Yeah, so it was unusual. So. Yeah, but he he was that kind of guy. David Pierce loved baseball, and he paid attention. If anything, David is much better organized than I am. He's definitely good as an organizer. Well, he's a great coach. Obviously, they finished third in the country. Um, but uh, I don't think he's – I think he's going to win some national championship. I don't want to put pressure on him, but I think he can. He's capable, and the situation is good, although not as good as a lot of people think. they just got a certain amount of spots to bring in. And David – thinks you only hired him because he threw good left-handed batting practice. Was, he likes is that to true? tell that joke. <laughs> but he had a background that was similar to mine. He came through the high school, very successful at Doby, and then had, had some college experience already. Uh, I just knew that uh, he, he loved the game. He wanted to learn, and uh, he had enough toughness, obviously. Obviously, he has enough toughness. Well, Mike Taylor, Coach T, we called him. He had grit. Oh. He could throw good BP, and he'd get Taylor. out there and work as hard as you want him. He'd be fielding ground balls himself, and we love that guy. Yeah, and that was – we were getting to near the end of the time when I could demonstrate, when my body would allow me to do all the things I wanted. I was still doing a lot. You still hit fungo back then. And yeah, coach, and, and coach third. BP. But Mike really came in, and – I mean, Mike – if he had not hurt his shoulder, he, his family had a history of a dislocating shoulder. I think Mike would have played a long time in the big leagues because Mike was a great infielder. He could catch and he could throw it straight and he could put something on it and he could teach it. It was good. I want you to tell me where you think you fit in terms of all-time greatest coaches in college baseball. Actually, I like to look at it like they talked about Earl Campbell, who's my favorite football player of all time. I like Brady, but I, Earl Campbell, if you were inside the five-yard line, you were going to score. That's all there was to it. You were going to score. And they asked, uh, I think, uh, ask, uh, who was his old coach, you know, with Oilers? Was it Bum Phillips? Yeah, Bum. They asked Bum, how do you rate Earl Campbell? And he said, well, he may not be in a class by himself. But it don't take long to take the role. <laughs> well, Skip Bartman said the same thing. He was very complimentary of you. He said that Graham was one of he's one of the great ones. His longevity, his ability to recruit, his ability to run a practice, and his in-game skills proves he's one of the greatest. That's what Skip had to say about you. Well, I'd say the same about him. Although with a record, you'd almost have to call him the greatest, Skip, because he won all those national championships. I remember when he, when he went into LSU, it was all there, but they had done nothing with it. Nothing. And he turned it around largely with uh, 
I don't know what you'd call it, attitude. He got the attitude going, and he could recruit. Who he could recruit. Well, I talked to Gene Stevenson as well, and he said he wished he had the talent in his backyard that you had in the greater oh, Houston backyard, area. backyard, yeah. But he agreed that y'all both deserve extra bonus points for taking a program that really had not much success and, and winning a national championship, the only school national championship. Yeah, he had some advantages, but he had some disadvantages. Wichita State is actually a kind of a north school. They're kind of cold. They didn't have football then, so that helped him. And I thought, think it was a lot easier to get people in the school that helped him. But he did it. He built this program from scratch. So do you, you ever wish you would have left Rice for another job? Well, there was a lot of thinking at one time. In fact, Todd Edwards, who's a good friend of mine to this day, uh, got his son into Rice, Kate. Uh, but he thought, or he went gangbusters to get me at A&M. And uh, basically that got me some things at Rice that I wanted, which made the difference. I mean, not even calling Burnt back. Burnt was AD. And he asked Bobby May to have me call him. And I said, Bobby, you want me to call him? Uh, and Bobby said, no. Not if you want to stay here. And I said, well, there's some things we need. And that was late one day. So I listed, I went home, I listed seven things. I said, well, I've got them, Bobby. At nine o'clock the next morning, he was in my office. I laid the seven things down there and he agreed all of them. Couldn't go then. I knew I had a great team and I knew coming back, we had a good year the next year. And I knew that a world of them would want to go to A&M with me. So it would have been a good deal, but what are you gonna do when you lay seven things out and they agreed to all of them. One of them I remember was a country club membership. <laughs> so. And you got that? Yeah, I got them all, all seven. And the idea that we had to have underground drainage on our field, a new field, which we got. There was other things, not much salary wise, a little bit, I think. Maybe it was bonuses for winning, something like that. Gotcha. So let's, let's move to the end of your time at Rice. And it, you wanted to stay on and keep coaching. Um, well, it really, I have a horrible back. In fact, I'm about to go in for um, procedures. And it was horrible. For, heck, I was limping when you were mm -hmm. at Rice. In fact, I, was, uh, I had a disabled sticker before I ever came to Rice. You didn't know that. I didn't because in 1986, I nearly died from a staph infection and my knees were bad. You wouldn't have let us know that you would have had to park in a handicapped spot. You, you were too, no, you were too tough to... No, no. <laughs> I couldn't do that. And I threw back in practice and had fungos. But uh, I was to the point where it was becoming, you know, where probably hurt recruiting because I was bent, you know, a lot because my back was so bad. But I wanted another year basically to protect my coaching staff 
And I thought we had a great team coming back, which it turned out, coming back, they had the two best pitchers in the conference, Canarino and uh, Evan Kravitz. They were the two best pitchers in the conference. There was only one other that was close. So I thought we could have a good year. and But the thing was, uh, in my opinion, the administration didn't want to succeed because they wanted to get rid of me because they had a model. You know, they wanted their people there, and I wasn't their people. Even though, you know, I still could make all the right decisions, I thought. But my uh, last four years, I didn't think we got, I know, in fact, I could cite instances I know we didn't get the support we were supposed to get. I can really, if anybody wants to challenge what I just said, I can lay them out. And they're pretty firm. Your your boss was a, a new AD that, that came in, and he was younger, didn't go to Rice. Do you think he was intimidated by you? Well, I guess uh, if you want to be the last word, which I guess every athletic director would, I guess that would be something you wanted to, let's just say it was an aggravation. I think I was an aggravation that he didn't need. And he had been given the wherewithal to do what he needed to do to make that happen. Well, I hope that whatever wounds are still open that can heal and, and you get honored the way you should be as the, the greatest well, coach of all time. Maybe college baseball definitely at Rice and put a statue out front and, and you're able to go back there and be welcome like you should. Well, it's much easier now because I think uh, Carlgard did the best thing and the best political thing at the same time. The best available political thing. Because the crew's name in Houston is justifiably gold. They've, they've always, I remember, I threw batting practice to Chao when I threw batting practice for the Astros. And he played hard and he played well. I always admired the way he played because he wasn't a very big man. If he'd have played in a small ballpark like Morgan did, he could hit 30 home runs, I'm telling you, because I threw batting practice to him. And when he wanted to hit one in the stands, I knew where to throw it. And he had hit it in the second deck. So that family, hiring Cruz is a, is a move, a good move. He should be, you know, I don't know that all the, the cards are there to be successful, but you can always change a card or two if uh, necessary. So, Coach, what do you miss the most now that you're not coaching? Oh, I guess everybody that retires misses being relevant, you know, your word, what you say means more, although people are very, very respectful in Austin. It's amazing that um, how respectful they've been. Of course, I'm with people that appreciate what we've done. David Pierce, Chris Delconi, who was athletic director at Rice for three years. We live in the same neighborhood with both of them, and the neighborhood is a good one. You can see that. It's like living in an arboretum. I would have thought that, I mean, as competitive as you are, and I, 
I don't think that ever goes away. But you no, got- I miss the competition some. I do puzzles. I can do any Sudoku puzzle that's ever been invented. If it's doable, I can do it. So you're still finding ways to scratch that competitive itch, but you used to get out of bed every morning and figure out how to go beat somebody. Yep. Six o'clock in the morning. Now I wake up at 8.30. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yes, I did. And uh, that, you always miss the competition. Yeah. And I probably should get involved in something like... Uh, Handball? Bridge club. Handball. <laughs> Weren't you the champion? I was a city champion three times. But, boy, I couldn't. With my back, I couldn't even get in the court. I could teach it because I know the shots. I don't know the angles. Well, I got one last story for you. and I don't know if you remember. When you recruited me, um, the visit consisted of me coming and sitting in your office. My dad had dropped me off. It was after I completed my first year of blend. And we sat down, and we probably had an hour conversation in your office. And my dad was driving around the loop there at Rice probably 50 times, wondering what we're talking about. And he told me, he said, look, I don't have much money. I can give you books and fees. I think it was book. I don't know if it was books. No, you got something. (laughs) But he said, if you come in here and and prove yourself, I'm going to play the best players. I can't guarantee playing time but I can guarantee you an opportunity. And if you prove yourself, become an impact player, we'll try to get you more money. And I left there, and that's all I wanted to hear. I wanted an opportunity. Didn't want you to give me anything. And it was the best decision I ever made. And told my dad, hey, we're going to Rice. I hope you can afford it. (laughs) But it changed my life. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that because, uh, you know, one thing I think that people found out over time is I told the truth. I I felt obligated to follow through on anything I promised. And there's very few. I don't know that there's anyone that can say that I didn't fulfill whatever I promised them. I don't believe there is any. And they, I don't know that there's a whole lot of people that say that, but maybe there are. Well, Coach, you can have the last word. Anything you want to say? You know, I always favored certain words, certain concepts, not words. Uh, Adaptable, resilient, relentless, perseverance. Those were the background words of our program. And you've got to learn from your mistakes. Uh, That was one reason I survived as a coach, because I've always felt that a defeat was information. I know it is. And I think that coaches that don't believe that or adapt to that can't survive psychologically. They're going to, it'll drive them crazy. Um, Oh, and the other things I wanted to emphasize more, because this is, I never lost sight of it, ever lost sight of this. In all the teams I coached, I said there are two things that are more important than anything else. And you can't ever let politics... There's pragmatism that enters into it, but you can't really let it go that far. And I think, if nothing else, I was successful because I was committed to human growth and development. Development. And winning. Winning's important. You don't have a job. Well, Coach, you've touched 
so many people's lives. You're a legend. You're a man of grit. Thank you for being on the Grit Men Show. Thank you. I hope we did it all with integrity. Guys, he's a lot like nails. He plays like nails. He's tough as nails. He likes to call himself Grit Man. Whatever that means. I saw a lot of family way home.